0: Before we get started, a note. Delaware by Dark discusses themes of suicide, murder, mayhem, and things skulking in the shadows. Listener discretion is advised. If you're having suicidal thoughts or thoughts about hurting others, please reach out for help. Contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline or your local mental health provider. Help is always available to you. This episode also contains descriptions of racism, human trafficking, and sex work consider donating time or money to the Southern Poverty Law Center at splcenter.org or to the Polaris Project at polarisproject.org. Anything helps, and a few dollars could save someone's life. And now, dim the lights, open your mind, and watch the sunset. It was nearly 11 at night, and I had just finished up with a long shift at a local hospital. I was tired and distracted by the radio when I pulled up to a stoplight near a quiet intersection. I remember my scrubs smelled like insulin and sweat. I'd worked in the IV room that night, and my brain felt like a scrambled egg cooked for too long. I had the windows rolled down for some fresh air, waiting for the light to turn green when the person reached into my car. I had just enough time to look over at him as he opened the door from the inside. Hey buddy, let me get a ride. Before I could say anything, he slid into the passenger seat of my Kia Rio. The shock struck me dumb. I don't remember what I said to him. Knowing me, it was probably something along the lines of, sure. Have you ever felt your life was being hijacked? This is how that felt. A strange man suddenly in my car. The close proximity of our seats. The way he acted like he belonged there. What's your name? I considered lying, but I wore a name tag with my name and photo on it. Mark, I told him. Hey, thanks, Mike. I didn't correct him. I asked him where he was going. The man ignored the question. He just motioned to take a right past the light. I considered telling him to get out of the car. The stoplight was still red. I nearly did it, but then I dredged up an old memory. A line of a cheesy country song. What if he's an angel, sent here from heaven, making sure that you're doing your best? This wasn't the first hitchhiker who'd ever ended up in my car. I'd picked up at least four of them since I'd started driving. All of them when I was much younger. All of them when I was much more naive. All of them near my hometown in Oklahoma. I picked them up because I was a Christian, and leaving someone in need on the side of the road isn't especially Christ-like. What if he's an angel, right? The light turned green. I turned right into the darkness. The thing about hitchers is that you always remember them by their smell. The man I bought gas station burritos and milk for smelled like B.O. A woman who told me God was blessing me smelled like baby powder deodorant. The closeness always makes it impossible to not smell the person in the car with you. This guy smelled like sweat and liquor his speech was fast manic bordering on incoherent I don't remember what exactly we talked about only that he would feed me directions one at a time each time he waited until I had nearly passed the road before he piped up not much of it made sense but one line was crystal clear the man told me he served in Vietnam when he said it I looked over at him A smirk pulled at the corners of his face. He could have been 60. He could have been 900. Time had not been kind to this man. We used to use knives sometimes, he confessed. You'd pull out this big knife, drag it up and down on them, cut them until the white meat showed. Have you ever felt fear curdle into terror in your stomach? Have you ever imagined how bad a situation could turn out? Have you ever accepted that you were about to die? Almost there, buddy. Take a right. The road was well known for being a place you didn't want to be at night. A place you could visit and score heroin, pills, weed, whatever. A place where there might be a cop wondering what I was doing there. Maybe if I got lucky. Maybe if I got pulled over, things would turn out okay. But the road was deserted, He pointed to a run-down house with a driveway full of cars. That's the place, Mike. I pulled to a stop. My heart hammered in my chest. I was convinced I was about to be stabbed to death in my own car. Hey, a man, you think you could give me some dollars? Just to get by, that is. Normally, I didn't carry cash, and I didn't have much money to begin with. Some unlucky breaks had left me in some hard financial times. I honestly wasn't sure what was in my wallet. I pulled it from my pocket and peeked inside. A crisp $20 bill. Haircut money. If I handed it over, the man would get out of my car, though. I could go home to my girlfriend. I could see my two dogs and my cat. I could talk to my family one last time. I could see my friends. I could drive as fast as I could, letting the perfume of summer flowers clear the smell of liquor and sweat from the car. You see, this $20 bill was buying my life. I pressed it into the man's hand. He looked down, smiled, and opened the car door. If it had been a movie, the man would have said something pithy. Something about how it's a dangerous world out there and how I needed to be careful. Something about crazy people. But life isn't a movie. "'Hey, thanks,' he said. And then, just as quickly as he had come into my life, he returned to the shadows. I didn't wait to see if he made it to the door. I put the car in gear and drove to the nearest highway. I rolled the windows up and locked the door, and even though I could still smell the man, I had never felt so free. Cut them until the white meat showed." Was it true? Maybe. Did it matter? Not a bit. I think about that moment a lot when I hear stories about random acts of violence perpetrated by strangers. You always wonder what goes on in people's minds when they realize they were in their final moments. I used to imagine everyone thinking they'll be okay until circumstances prove otherwise. But not after that night. That night taught me a few lessons. It taught me people are as dangerous as the night is long. It taught me that entire lives change once you accept that you're about to die. But more than anything, that night taught me one lesson that I keep in mind to this day. Keep your windows rolled up if you drive at night. My name is Mark Belial, and this is Delaware by Dark. trust is a funny thing it's essential to societal function i trust that you'll stop at a red light you trust that if you need help someone will be there to give you a hand trust is capital spent from person to person if society is healthy trust stays in the community it gets passed back and forth like a twenty dollar bill but if trust is ruined Suddenly, I can't trust the service pistol on the hip of a policeman. You can't trust the words of a bellowing politician. And we can't trust that a total stranger won't cut us until the white meat shows. Community fidelity is one thing, but what about trust in your loved one? Your spouse? Mary Pennington learned the hard way that trust can be misplaced, and that the love you hold for someone can be sweet to the taste and as dangerous as a poison. In 1891, in the capital city of Dover, Delaware, a man named John P. Dunning took Mary Pennington as his wife. Mary was the daughter of a famous former congressman and was thrilled to be marrying an upwardly mobile newsman. The two of them were by all accounts a happy couple. Within a year, they welcomed an infant daughter into the world. But 1892 was a year of great upheaval for Mary. The pressures of motherhood are never kind but it was the new career opportunity for john that would be the cause of so much stress john dunning had been hired as an associated press editor in san francisco so the three of them packed everything they had and made the journey out west for a time life was good john brought in a good income and was considered quite wealthy mary could dote on her daughter to her heart's content But good times never last all that long. Because while John was a talented man with a loving family, he also had a wandering eye. On a random afternoon, John decided to take a walk around Golden Gate Park. While away from home, he would meet a woman who would forever change his life. John found her sitting on a park bench. She wore pinned up hair and an easy smile. She had a round face and a double chin. Maybe it was the way she carried herself. Maybe it was her sense of humor. But John was so taken by the woman that he began flirting with her. She said her name was Cordelia Bodkin, and that she had a husband named Welcome A. Bodkin. They were estranged, so he lived in Stockton, California with their son Beverly. Maybe it was the warm sun or the gorgeous park. But in that moment, John and Cordelia began a torrid love affair. In fact, Cordelia wasn't the only woman Dunning was seeing on the side. He also had two additional women he carried on extracurricular activities with when he wasn't home. San Francisco's famous hills became a metaphor for John dizzying highs, retching lows. Womanizing turned into hard drinking. Hard drinking turned into irresponsible gambling. Trust was expended, wagered at horse tracks peeled off in sweaty boarding house rooms. It was all doomed to fall apart. How did Mary find out? Can't be said for certain, but in 1895, Mary told John she was leaving him. She took their daughter and made the lonely return trip home to her father's house in Dover, Delaware. After Mary's departure, John and Cordelia were near constant companions. They frequented the same cafés together. They went to the same race tracks. They shared secrets with each other. John told Cordelia about his wife's weakness for sweets. He let slip that she had a dear friend in the city named Mrs. Corbray. While their relationship became white hot, John's reputation took a beating. Cordelia was known around town as a woman of loose morals. When his bosses learned of the infidelity and the gambling and the drunkenness, John was on thin ice. But it was his decision to embezzle AP funds that eventually did him in. He was fired, broke, and dishonored. There was only one thing left to be done. Crawl back to Mary, beg for her forgiveness, and sign up to cover the Spanish-American War in Puerto Rico. Cordelia begged him to stay, but John wouldn't hear it, She accompanied him to the bay, watched him get onto the ship, and as he departed her life forever, she wept. Cordelia was a woman used to getting whatever she wanted, but she didn't get John Dunning. And for those used to living their dreams, how does getting told no affect them? How long did she wander down those lonely sidewalks and park pathways? How long did she visit the old racetracks and gambling halls where she once held court? How long did it take for the jealousy in her broken heart to fester into something more poisonous, something much more dangerous? Almost five months to the day, nearly 3,000 miles away on the opposite coast, a package arrived in a mailbox belonging to Mr. John Pennington. It was a small thing addressed to Mrs. John Dunning. Mr. Pennington's grandson claimed the package and brought it home to the Pennington estate, where John Pennington, his two daughters, Ida Dean and Mary Dunning, and his son in law resided. After dinner that evening, the family retired to the veranda for some relief from the sweltering summer air. Mary retrieved the package, unwrapped it, and looked at its contents a small handkerchief, a box of chocolate creams, a handwritten note. With love to yourself and baby, Mrs. C., the note read. Mary, Ida, and Ida's two children shared some of the candy. Later in the evening, two younger women visited the house, and they too ate some. The candy was sweet and delicious, and no one knew anything was wrong until several hours later. That night, retching pain and intolerable vomiting afflicted everyone who had partaken. For two days, they struggled against the illness. Most slowly improved. Two of them weren't so lucky. Two days after eating the chocolates, Ida Dean died. What was it like for Mary on her sickbed to hear that her sister had passed away? Did anyone tell her? If she had grieved for her sister, she couldn't have done so for that long. The next day, Mary followed her sister into death. Two lives snuffed out in three days. Examination of the women's bodies and the chocolate determined they were murdered by arsenic poisoning. In case you're curious how arsenic kills a person, it depends on the dose and how quickly it was consumed. If a large dose is ingested quickly, the poison interferes with the way your body produces energy for your cells. This disruption, if left untreated, will leave your cells starved and unable to perform their basic functions. No neurological function. No cardiovascular function. Not even muscular function. There is no energy to be found. Multi-organ failure follows, driven by cell death and massive hemorrhaging. Three days of blood and vomit and diarrhea and delirium. What was it like for John Dunning to walk into his father-in-law's home after receiving the telegram in Puerto Rico? Did he show the shame he surely must have felt? What was going through his mind when he was handed the letter sent along with the poisoned chocolates? When he read the note, he whispered only one word, a name. The name of the person who had killed his wife. The person who had tried to kill his child. The person who had never been able to let him go as he sailed away. Cordelia, he said. The candy box, the handkerchief, and the note were transported from Delaware to San Francisco with a detective. When he arrived, he turned over all evidence to Chief of Police I.W. Lees. The man vowed to find justice for Mary Dunning. Within days, police had located Cordelia Botkin in Stockton, California living with her husband and her son. They brought Cordelia back to San Francisco, and police there quickly constructed an overwhelming case against her. Two women identified her as a woman who had visited a store to purchase candy. She had the clerk repackage the candy in a fancy box, with a little bit of room for additional items. Another woman tied her to the department store where the handkerchief had been purchased. Asked how she remembered Cordelia so well. The other woman said she looked eerily like her own mother she then produced a picture to testify to the fact the detectives were also surprised by the uncanny resemblance john dunning turned over all of their love letters and a handwriting analyst determined a match between the samples and the note left in the chocolate another woman swore that cordelia had asked her about the effects of different poisons on the immune system and whether you had to sign your name to send a package in the mail But the most incriminating witness was the druggist, who swore he had sold Cordelia a two-ounce bottle of arsenic. She claimed she needed the arsenic to bleach a straw hat. When he tried to tell her there were other chemicals that worked far better, Cordelia insisted on buying the poison. While the case was constructed smoothly, the legal wrangling had only just begun. The state of Delaware immediately filed extradition papers, claiming that because the murder happened there, the state would be the one to prosecute the woman. Her lawyer argued Delaware didn't have any jurisdiction in California, and moved for the case to be dismissed due to a lack of evidence. He may have won the right to avoid a trial in Delaware, but according to a grand jury, there was plenty of evidence to try her in California. The trial started in December of 1898 and went smoothly, save for John Dunning's refusal to disclose the name of the other women he was seeing at the time. For that, he was held in contempt of court, and jailed until the question was withdrawn. Less than a month after the trial started, Cordelia Botkin was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. A later United States Supreme Court decision required Cordelia to receive a new trial, presented to a superior court judge named Cook. Judge Cook required all of the old witnesses to come back to San Francisco, The last time John Dunning would ever see Cordelia Botkin was when she was found guilty of murder for the second time. Again, she received life imprisonment. And yet, Cordelia's story wasn't over. Judge Cook lost his wife during the trial and visited her grave every Sunday. One Sunday, he was taking the train and looked across the car to see Cordelia Botkin, dressed in fine clothes and apparently unguarded. As the train passed the jailhouse, she signaled for the car to stop. She departed and made for the jail before the judge lost sight of her in the crowd. The next day, Judge Cook called for an investigation. It was discovered that while in prison, Cordelia was making quite a life for herself. She lived in relative comfort and received day passes out of confinement. The convicted murderer had been intimate with several of the guards exchanging illicit favors for preferential treatment. Cook was unable to find anyone willing to admit what was going on. It appeared Cordelia would spend the rest of her days living in the lap of luxury, at least until the jailhouse was destroyed by the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. The days of privilege and comfort ended when Cordelia Botkin was transferred to San Quentin. There were no special favors. There were no silver linings. The last years of Cordelia Botkin were marked by loss. Her husband, Welcome A. Botkin, successfully divorced her and then died. Her mother died. Her sister died. Her son Beverly died. Her lover and the man who had broken her heart didn't fare much better. John Dunning was a ruined man after the trial. The stories destroyed his career, and he died penniless, dishonored and alone in Philadelphia in 1908. For four years, Cordelia lived in San Quentin. She aged poorly. Gone was the easy smile, the simple vanity of her younger years. Gone were the men in the gambling halls. Gone were the lunches in the city, the fun times, the happy moments, the feeling of John Dunning's lips on hers. She was never happy again. Cordelia Botkin died in San Quentin in 1910. Her death certificate stated it was due to softening of the brain due to melancholy. It was a fitting end for a vengeful monster. Cordelia Botkin's case is as interesting as it is tragic in several ways. She was the first person to ever commit murder through the United States Postal Service. Hers was also one of the first to have jurisdictional wrangling applied to the case. These days, we take this jurisdictional dust-up for granted. In Cordelia's time, things were much less clear. States often fought over the right to prosecute arrested individuals, which is still true to this day. Still... There is a level of cooperation between law enforcement that is quite useful in our modern time. For example, early in 2020, Canadian officials and U.S. law enforcement cooperated to find and apprehend a rogue Canadian Army reservist. Patrick Jordan Matthews, a white supremacist and a combat engineer, was arrested in Newark, Delaware, with two other conspirators. Matthews was an avowed member of a white supremacist organization called The Base. The Base dedicates itself to advocating and preparing for a race war. Multiple cells already exist in North America. The regional cell in Maryland and Delaware was responsible for picking up Matthews after he abandoned his military vehicle near the U.S. border. They made the trip back from Michigan, planning as they went Matthews recorded himself urging others to poison water supplies, to derail trains, to murder innocent people. He was filmed making an automatic assault rifle and joking. After being arrested, officials discovered the cell had been planning on attending a large pro-gun rally in Richmond, Virginia. The plan was to open fire on the crowd, killing as many as they could. Matthews even toyed with the idea of taking a police officer's weapon and killing him with it. The goal was to kickstart a second American Civil War, what internet crazies called the Boogaloo, or the Big Luau. It's the kind of stuff that's scarier than any ghost tale. White supremacists looking to start a race war in the year 2020? (laughs) It's been a long time since someone that evil resided in Delaware. Cooperation put Matthews and a portion of the base behind bars, but almost 200 years ago, that kind of cooperation didn't exist and the people of color living on the Delmarva Peninsula paid a high price because of that fact. The year is 1808, and the U.S. Congress had just banned the importation of slaves. As part of a compromise between northern free states and southern slave states, Congress wasn't allowed to declare the importation of slaves legal until that year. The consequences were extreme. While the importation of slaves had been halted, there was no such ban on the domestic slave trade. The decrease in supply made the domestic slave trade boom as the supply of slave labor plummeted. It should be no surprise that slavers who made their money off the sale of human beings would be willing to do anything in order to meet this demand. In addition to the capture of runaway slaves, Gangs of people roamed the nation and kidnapped unwary freed blacks for the purpose of reselling them to slave masters in the South. Sometimes this was done by deception. Other times this was done by brute force. This was called the Reverse Underground Railroad. It was a cruel and evil thing practiced by cruel and evil people. And none of them were more infamous than Patricia Cannon, a woman who would one day be called the most wicked woman in America. Cannon's story is shrouded in mystery. Some writers claim that she was a Canadian immigrant who married a man named Jesse Cannon at 16. They settled near the town of Johnson's Crossroad, now the modern site of the town of Reliance, Maryland. Jesse and Patty would have two children together before Jesse died under mysterious circumstances. In order to make ends meet, Cannon worked as a barmaid and a prostitute. Her dream was to eventually open her own brothel and command a roster of women to earn money for her. But her notoriously bad temperament made it nearly impossible for her to achieve that goal. By the age of 24, Cannon was having trouble attracting paying customers, so she decided to open her own tavern instead. The Sour Woman would use the establishment in the years to come as a headquarters for all of her most evil deeds. Everything changed for Patty Cannon when her daughter married a blacksmith named Harry Brereton. Brereton would often kidnap free blacks and sell them back into slavery. He taught this trade to Patty and her daughter with glee. Cannon would take the knowledge and forge her own connections, leaning hard on the male conductors of the Reverse Underground Railroad to assist her in forming an efficient operation. Brereton was eventually arrested and given a lengthy prison sentence for stealing slaves. While serving time at Georgetown, Delaware's jail, he organized and pulled off an escape. He rendezvoused with Cannon and decided his next move was robbing a slaver named Ridgel. Ridgel was passing through, and he was plied with cheap booze from Cannon's bar. When Brereton confronted Ridgel, a fight broke out. The slaver ended up shot and eventually died. Brereton was on the lam again, but this time things were different. To the law at the time, it was one thing to kidnap and sell free blacks to the South. It was a whole different class of crime to kill a white man. Brereton paid the ultimate price when he was captured and hanged for the crime in 1813. If either his wife or his mother-in-law warned him, you wouldn't have known. Cannon's daughter remarried quickly to a criminal named Joe Johnson. And it would be with Johnson that Cannon's gang really flourished. For the next 20 years, the Cannon-Johnson gang would kidnap, torture, and enslave men, women, and children. They would troll the streets of Philadelphia and steal victims away to riverways. They would terrorize freed black communities in Pennsylvania. And because their headquarters was right near the Mason-Dixon line, They had no trouble evading law enforcement. Whenever the heat got too high, Cannon would move her gang to Delaware or Maryland or Virginia. They would travel fast and work as they went. In addition to kidnapping freed blacks, they would raid other plantations and steal slaves from masters to be resold. Men would be threatened with murder. The gang would bribe them with money or promises of work to be found. Cannon used decoys, most often a biracial slave named Cyrus James, to convince free men to come to the gang. They would lure black children away with candy and kidnap them for a life of servitude. How many families lost their children to this hateful beast? How many lives were ruined for her profit? And profit she did. Each life she stole could be sold for two to three hundred dollars an amount equal to a couple thousand dollars today. And her avarice knew no color. She was just as happy robbing and murdering other wealthy whites who by chance dated her tavern. The tavern itself was a place of horror. Kidnapped people were kept in secret rooms where they were chained and tortured. These rooms would be remembered upon the discovery of Marie Delphine LaLaurie's attic of horrors in New Orleans some 15 years later the worst, most shameful part of this history is that none of this was secret. The Cannon-Johnson gang operated with near impunity. Some locals feared the gang, but most residents of the areas that they worked in just didn't care enough about black families to put a stop to it. At least until Philadelphia Mayor Joseph Watson and Pennsylvania Governor John Andrew Scholes began to rescue the blacks sold into slavery during the summer of 1825. The first two members of Cannon's criminals were captured in 1827. They were both acquitted, but a biracial man named Purnell was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 42 years in prison. For the most part, prosecutors had an exceedingly difficult time trying the whites in the gang. That was until a posse of men cornered the Cannon-Johnson gang near the Maryland border. They took johnson alive and rescued 13 people from being sold into slavery the oldest was 55 the youngest was under 11. the evidence was clear and while the majority of the gang escaped punishment johnson would get the worst of it he was convicted and sentenced to public lashing and pillory the state of delaware carried out the sentence johnson was lashed 39 times placed within the stocks and had his ears nailed to the wooden post. Normally, once he'd been punished, officials would have cut off the soft parts of his ears to free him, but Johnson was lucky enough to have that portion of the sentence remitted by the governor. Living through 39 lashes was no sure thing, but Johnson lived through the punishment and fled for Alabama afterwards, where he eventually died. And just like that, the most powerful evil gang in Delaware history was broken up. Well, almost. Because Patty Cannon had gotten away scot free. She had reaped a life of degradation, greed, and wickedness. She was almost seventy and appeared she would never have any sort of comeuppance for the evil she had unleashed into the world. Until 1829, that is. A tenant farmer working her fields discovered a blue trunk filled with bones. He suspected they belonged to some long-forgotten slaver, and turned her into the authorities. Around the same time, Cyrus James, the slave she'd owned and was used as a trap for capturing other blacks, was captured. Under questioning, he gave everything about her crimes up. He told the officers how once she'd carried a small, battered boy out of a kitchen into the fields. She returned the boy didn't. James was brought to the property and assisted local law enforcement in finding four bodies on the farm. Three of these were children. Patty Cannon was arrested and brought before questioners. She made no excuses. She freely admitted to the murder of nearly two dozen kidnapped victims. And with that, finally there was justice. Cannon was indicted by a grand jury of 24 white men. The trial was speedy. The outcome was never in doubt. Death by hanging. What happened next is still a matter of debate. Some sources say she died of natural causes a week before her hanging was scheduled. Others report she committed suicide by ingesting the same poison that killed her first husband so many years ago. Patty Cannon cheated justice one last time. The world was a better place without her in it. And that is where our story should end. Like so many stories concerning the first state, history has a funny way of resolving itself. The hateful creature was buried in the graveyard of the Georgetown Delaware Jail. Eventually, a construction project required her remains be moved to a potter's field in 1907. While her body was exhumed, a courthouse employee named Charles Joseph took the skull of Patty Cannon as a family heirloom. Joseph kept the skull on a nail in his barn, proudly displaying the remains of the wickedest woman in America. In 1961, the skull was gifted to the Dover Public Library who would then display it every Halloween to serve as a shameful reminder of one of the worst chapters in Delaware history. For the longest time, you could schedule an appointment to see the skull in person. It was kept in a red hat box in the back, free to see any time, so long as you called first. But after laws governing the display of bodies changed, the library decided to give the skull to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. While she may have cheated the hangman's rope, Patty Cannon couldn't cheat history. Her evil deeds now ring out through the centuries. Estimates put the number of people sold by Cannon's gang at about 3,000. And while her death could never settle the debt she owed, perhaps that skull is the world's way of attempting to even the ledger. Her body has been buried and forgotten. And now only her head exists to gaze upon and wonder at the true horrors of humanity. One day, hopefully, her skull will turn to dust and disappear forever. We could hope that the legacy of slavery and racial supremacy in this country would follow it. There could be no better end to the story of the most wicked woman in America. This is the episode that haunted me the most. My own interactions with evil have been thankfully limited, but there's no guarantee of that in the future. Life is unpredictable. American history is rife with wicked people looking for superiority or a paycheck or even sweet revenge. If these stories exist even in peaceful Delaware, how long before you become part of one? These are the truest horrors of our world. It's not the monsters. It's not the demons, it's not the departed spirits lingering in the dark, it's the murderer, it's the slaver, those willing to deny the basic humanity of their victims. There was another story I wanted to tell in this episode, but I didn't have the stomach for it. The world is already too cruel right now. Better to leave the evil in the faraway reaches of the past than to beckon more trouble to heap upon us so this is the episode that has troubled my mind, the one that gave me nightmares. But there is hope, a light in the darkness. For every Cordelia Bodkin, there are millions of people who wish their exes well and remember their relationships fondly. For every Patty Cannon, there are many more who worked to recover the people she sold. For every cancerous separatist, there are many who say to the stranger, I am the same as you, and you are the same as me. Evil requires permission from the good to flourish. While the night is long, and the amount of cruelty in the human heart is nearly infinite, this episode taught me that with enough people holding just a little light, we can almost approximate a sunrise. And that is good enough. Thank you for joining us tonight on the third episode of Delaware by Dark. I hope you enjoyed the little walk down the more monstrous paths of Delaware history. It would mean the world for us if you rated and reviewed us on your podcaster of choice. If you don't feel like rating and reviewing, that's fine. You can also share this episode with a friend, loved one, or maybe send it to your ex's wife with a box of chocolate. Maybe just don't poison the candy, though. If you've ever seen Paddy Cannon's Skull, or wanted to give me a definitive ranking of candy bars... Write into the show at randomdrawpodcast at gmail.com. We're planning on making this a month-long journey, and I would love to hear your spookiest stories. Delaware by Dark is a Random Draw production, and was written and hosted by Mark Blyle, hey, that's me, and produced and edited by super skeptic Dave Hubbard. Oddly enough, he believed every single one of these stories. Special thanks to Will Albanese, who shared with me the story of Patty Cannon, and to everyone volunteering time, money, and blood for the equality of all people in this life. We will be the sunrise one fine morning, I promise you. Next time, join us as we lace up our hiking boots and head out into the forest to explore the haunted parks and wilder places in Delaware. In the meantime, stay safe, open your mind, and keep watching the shadows.